You know, a lot of the funniest things, the most interesting things in the world are the things that we tend not to notice as we go about our day. Like breathing, for example. It's kind of constantly happening, right? One would hope. We don't usually think about it, even though it's the most essential component of life, more essential than food or water, more essential, believe it or not, church, than iPhones and Facebook. It's, it's pretty essential there, but we, we rarely pay attention to it, except in moments of silence, like the two minutes that we just had a few moments ago and, and listening to uh, the song. I'd like to invite you to join me in a little experiment for this moment. We're going to double dip into silence for just a little while and reflect on it. I'm going to invite you to talk in church a little bit. I know a lot of us when we were growing up, our parents said, no, don't talk in church. But I want, I want to hear from you all. So I invite you to sit up as straight as you are able, sitting as comfortably as you can. Feet flat on the ground, if you can. And you can close your eyes if you like, but that's not strictly necessary for this. And uh, I've been told that you've done exercises like this before with Reverend Rachel, so you probably be familiar with this, but just pay attention to the rhythm of your breathing. not try to control it or force it. This is not about deep breathing. It's just that regular rhythm that's always happening. Notice the feeling of the air as it passes through your nostrils. Notice the movement of your chest and your shoulders as the air fills your lungs. Maybe notice the expanding of your abdomen as your diaphragm pulls the atmosphere into your body. I'll just sit with that for a moment.
After a little bit, you'll probably notice some other things as well. Maybe little noises in the room. Twitches or pains in your body. Thoughts popping in and out of your head. Did I leave the coffee maker on at home? And all of that's perfectly normal. You don't have to judge them. Just gently bring your attention back to the rhythm of your breathing. emptying your mind or stopping yourself from thinking your brain's just doing what it does your eyes again if you had them closed. So let me ask you, what did you notice during this exercise or in the silence that preceded it before the song? What do you notice? It was the sounds of the kids, yeah, playing around. The new life that's growing in the midst of this community. What else? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the noise of the air system, the sunshine. Yeah. So, yeah, if your eyes are open, you could see it coming in. Yeah, uh, or feel it, the warmth on your face. Uh, it's a gift that traveled 93 uh, million miles, I think, to uh, to warm you there. That's a, a long journey for that gift. What else did you notice? Yeah, yeah, that new awareness, like, oh, I didn't realize I was holding tension. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. One of the things I've often noticed is uh, after I've been doing an exercise like that for a while and I first opened my eyes, that colors seem a little bit more vivid than they did before. I started, even though it might be the same room that I've been practicing this in for years, it's like, oh, I never noticed how red that carpet is. Let me ask you another question. What do you think would happen within you if you were to practice something like this for, say, five minutes a day, or maybe 
extend that out, adding to it 10, 15, 20 minutes a day. What do you imagine that effect would be? Maybe if you've been practicing like this for a long time, you already know and you can describe it. Lower blood pressure. Lower blood pressure. Yeah. Feeling of well-being. Feeling of well-being, yeah. Absolutely. Less reactive. Less reactive, yeah. Absolutely. These are great. Well, that's, uh, you, you've, I can corroborate your, your imagination here with research, actually. I, uh, there are several self-help books that have been written on this kind of practice, sometimes called mindfulness, meditation, something to that effect. And a lot of studies have demonstrated that those who practice this kind of exercise on a regular basis do report a greater sense of relaxation or well-being decreased stress and anxiety and emotional reactivity. And at the same time, they report an increase in things like memory and focus and in cognitive flexibility was one that came up that I really liked. Therapists who practice this report an improvement in their counseling abilities and their ability to be present with their clients or patients when they're there in their room. The goal of mindfulness, as I understand it, is not to stop our thoughts and feelings, but to stop our identification with our thoughts and feelings. In an age where Twitter has reduced human beings to seething balls of opinions, mindfulness brings us back to the awareness that we are more than the sum of our thoughts. Our true self, if you will, has roots that go much, much deeper than the surface of our ego. And mindfulness brings us into a conscious awareness of that true self. The philosopher of religion, John Hick, points out that all of the religious and spiritual traditions of the world bring their practitioners on a similar arc of a journey. And this journey is conceived of and expressed with different symbols, obviously in different language. That journey might be called salvation, enlightenment, liberation, recovery, different words. But Hick makes the points in his books that these are the same journey that's happening again and again. And what they have in, in common is that they present us, their practitioners, with a problem and a solution. According to Hick, it's a journey from a self-centered way of living to a reality-centered way of living. And I think I would extend Hick's observation beyond the bounds of what we traditionally have thought of as religious practice as well. Because I think we can see that same kind of journey taking place in the late medieval and early modern ages with the advent of what we sometimes call the scientific revolution. Many of us in school have heard about the Polish astronomer Nicolaus Copernicus, who in 1543 CE published a manuscript on the revolutions of the celestial spheres. And in this book, Copernicus set forth this radical idea that the sun was the center of the solar system. 
while the Earth and the other planets revolved around it. Now, this theory was not original to Copernicus, actually. It had been formulated by four by a lot of different people, but it was Copernicus who rediscovered the idea and reintroduced the idea of a heliocentric solar system to Western Europe in the 16th century. And what came to be known as the Copernican model challenged the prevailing orthodox view of that time, which declared unequivocally that the earth was stationary while everything else in the universe revolved around this. We remember hearing about this a lot. A a later scientist, Galileo, got himself in a real whole heap of trouble when uh, he started talking about Copernicus's ideas. Copernicus's views were ridiculed and rejected by powerful religious and political forces at that time because these supposedly heretical ideas called into question the power of a social system that was upheld by those politics and religion. The thing that caused Copernicus's detractors to tremble in fear was the thought that they might not be the center of the universe after all. The Copernican revolution and the subsequent development of the scientific method represents the gradual gradual eclipse of traditional doctrine with the, the practice of rational observation in the matters of physical sciences. As the centuries have gone on, reason has not replaced religion entirely, but it has caused it to adapt and grow in some new directions, which I think have been good and healthy. If we take John Hicks' model of spirituality as a journey from self-centered thinking to reality-centered thinking, we can accept, then, the Copernican Revolution as a scientifically religious event. And I think we can also understand it in terms of mindfulness practice. As I said before, mindfulness brings us to the awareness that we are more than the sum of our thoughts. It shows us that we are not the center of the universe, but merely parts of a whole. And on the one hand, such a realization is threatening to anyone who would identify themselves by their power or their possessions or their privilege. But on the other hand, it also has the potential to be profoundly liberating to those who are willing to open their minds. I like to think of the images that have been beamed back to Earth from the Hubble Space Telescope for the past three decades or so. These photographs are like sacred icons to me. In those galaxies and nebulae, I see a beauty that is so vast and so ancient that I seem like this teeny tiny little speck of dust or maybe a wisp of smoke in comparison to it. But on the other hand, I look at them and I realize that the same cosmic order that gave rise to that beauty of the Carina Nebula or the Andromeda Galaxy exists also in the atoms of my own body. That same order and beauty gave rise to me and to you and to everyone around you. Together, we are the universe. 
observing those images with my eyes and contemplating them with my brain. I feel both small and great at the same time. And I get a sense of reassurance that no matter what happens to me in this life, the beauty of the cosmic order will remain untouched and continue to give rise to new forms in the future. That is my basis for faith, hope, and love. And let me tell you, it feels like freedom. There's freedom to be found in the practice of mindfulness. But that is far from obvious for those who persist in identifying with their egocentric thoughts and emotions. The past century has brought us an increasing, though still incomplete, awareness of the diversity and dignity of creation. This awareness has inspired some among us to stand up for equality and the rights of our fellow beings. The struggle for women's suffrage, for example, and civil rights have given rise today to movements like Me Too and Black Lives Matter. And we have made some progress, but our work has still just begun. Just as in Copernicus's time, powerful forces are reacting strongly against the advancement of equality. As some step out and speak out, there are others who decry their message as a war on Christmas or a war on traditional marriage or a war on America, a war on white people, a war on men. Interesting, it's always the language of violence, isn't it? It's never a discussion about Christmas. It's a war. Those who have benefited from an unfair distribution of power and resources are afraid that their loss of privileged status is an attack on their very identity and existence. In mindfulness terms, they are continuing to identify with their socially constructed categories like race, gender, ethnicity, nationality, culture, sexual orientation, uh, body ability, religion, etc. I have not nearly named them all. And I say they, but really I should be saying we, especially me, because I stand before you today as a beneficiary of almost every single one of those categories. I'm a white, middle-class, straight, cisgendered, male, American, and Christian human being. The political and economic structures of this country were set up by people who look like me for people who look like me. I receive an unfair amount of privilege over and against my fellow human beings simply because I was lucky enough to be born this way and not some other way. So I speak this morning to anyone who shares my privilege in any or all of the categories I've just named. But I even speak to all of us as members of the species Homo sapiens because Homo sapiens, humans, we occupy a privileged position of power over the other species and ecosystems on this planet. We in the United States espouse the philosophical ideals of equality, but the truth is that we have too often failed to live up to them in practice. 
Our privilege is a crime against humanity and, in the language of my Christian tradition, a sin against God. And while we are not personally culpable for the misdeeds of past generations, we are nevertheless responsible for doing our part to reshape the present for the sake of future generations. The task before us is to check our privilege in our dealings and interactions with those who do not possess a fair share of power and resources at the table. Our threefold mission, like Copernicus, is to let go of false yet convenient models of the past, to realize that we are not the center of the universe, and to take our place as parts of a great and beautiful whole. We can never hope to make anything really great again. Because reality itself has never ceased to be great. And it never will cease to be great. Its greatness is simply there to be observed. All we have to do is open our eyes and open our ears and open our hearts and open our minds to become aware of it. I believe and I've experienced that mindfulness meditation, like we have just practiced, is one tool that we can use in cultivating this awareness of our inherent greatness. We can check our privilege, not by flagellating ourselves in guilt for the sins of the past, but by being fully present here in this moment with our fellow beings. We can check our privilege by showing up, by being still, by looking compassionately into one another's eyes and listening attentively to the pain that has been caused by centuries of, of oppression. Over a century ago, the members of People's Church did exactly that as they sat and listened to Sojourner Truth preach from the pulpit of this congregation. And I have a hunch that by practicing mindful awareness today, we will find ourselves once again in that great company of pro prophets like Nicolaus Copernicus or Sojourner Truth. And in that great communion of saints who have made the journey from self-centered living to reality-centered living. We can't change the mistakes of the past, but we can check our privilege by practicing mindful awareness today and in so doing lay a foundation for a better tomorrow. May it be so. Amen.